And yeah, okay, cool. <laughs> this is where our soundtrack goes. Welcome to the Trade Waiters, everybody. Um, we are uh, recording this both in video and audio form. So if you're listening to this on the podcast, it sounds a little different. That's why. And if you're seeing this in video, you might not know we have a podcast called the Trade Waiters, where uh, it's like a book club, but for comics and uh, it's all on the internet. So you can't actually interact with us. Um, we're doing this for VanCap. Uh, 20, what year is it even? I've forgotten. 2020. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, what year and... is it? <laughs> I know it, it feels years. like several years went by, but it is still 2020. Okay. Um, so the topic of our uh, episode today is uh, how to get the most out of your comics, uh, how to read deeply. So uh, this is something that's come up basically every episode we've done with the Trade Waiters is sort of delving into like what is a book trying to accomplish, how well is it accomplishing that, um, what do we the readers get out of it, uh, how does it fit into uh, the context of it, uh, the conditions it was made in or into the conditions we're reading it in. So uh, I guess this is comics as literature because uh, that's um, part of the point, at least part of the point why I want to be in a book club is because it's fun to sort of do this thing with books and sort of explore with other people, like, what is this book? What is it doing? Uh, but maybe we should introduce ourselves first. Uh, so, um, our only character building question today is going to be the books you're picking as your example. So tell us who you are and where we can find you on the internet and what books you picked. Um, okay, so who wants to start? I can start. Okay, so my name is Jam. Great to see you all. Uh, you can find my work at wastedtalent.ca and patreon.com slash jam. Uh, the two books that I chose to bring back for examples of how to read deeply, uh, the first is the Scott Pilgrim series, which we covered in Trade Waiters episode 30, hmm, 37, 8, and 9. So 37, 38, and 39 was our Scott Pilgrimage. Uh, and I've also selected uh, Brian, Leo's, Brian Leo O'Malley's follow-up, not, not related, but next graphic novel uh, called Seconds, and that was Trade Waiters number one. Right on. That takes me back, Trade Waiters number one. Um, so uh, I am Jeff Ellis, and uh, uh, you can find my work at uh, jeffreyellis.ca. And uh, I chose, um, so I chose two books that I ultimately felt had a lot of parallels. And so part of the reading deeply was my own discovery of 
how these two works kind of uh, reflected and contrasted each other. Um, so my first book was uh, one, what I feel is one of our most controversial episodes, which was V for Vendetta by Alan Moore. Um, and then my uh, second choice was actually one of our, our two-part episodes where we did the series of Berlin by Jason Lutz. So here's the all three volumes, uh, which was later collected into a nice hardcover. Um, and I think this was actually where I feel like we had one of our best discussions of a book. So uh, I think um, both episodes, we had a lot to say. And I think um, I, looking back on these and the questions, I found... Um, a lot of connection between the two works that I'm interested to talk about today. Okay, uh, I'm Jonathan. Uh, you can find my work at phobos-comic.com. And the books I picked, uh, I picked um, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind by Hayao Miyazaki, which uh, I believe is still our most listened to episode. Um, we did two episodes on this series because it's pretty long. Uh, and um, it might, I think, have been the first manga series that we did an episode on. I'm not entirely sure about that. but We didn't do uh, Astro Boy before that? Uh, I can't remember. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. You might be right. I think, I think we did time. Astro Boy first. Okay. It was one of the early ones anyways. Uh, and so this is, I have several volumes of this. Um, it's pretty long. Uh, and the other book I picked is uh, Persepolis by uh, Marjan Satrapi, which is another uh, well-listened to episode. I think both of those books are books that a lot of people have read, and maybe that's why they're episodes that listeners have gravitated to. Um, so they're very different books, but uh, I think that's going to maybe be some uh, interesting discussions. Um, all right, so I have a list of questions, uh, and we're going to go through these as sort of to frame uh, different ways to think about the comics that you're reading. Uh, so the first question is uh, maybe the deepest one, uh, which is what is the goal of the work? So uh, as a reader, you can never really be sure, or you can never know for sure what the intent of the author was, but often they leave plenty of clues, and often they kind of want you to understand what their purpose was. So um, this is kind of where the conversation happens between author and reader, uh, and is, uh, for me at least, one of the most uh, interesting parts of reading a comic or any other kind of storytelling medium. I agree. I think this is one of the most interesting questions when you're starting to really read a comic more deeply. Uh, because in making that guess, you can see how the decisions of the author either support or detract from that goal. Uh, and as you mentioned, like anything that we decide is the goal is just a guess. Uh, and some goals are more tangible than others. Sometimes an author just wants to make a comic. <laughs> yeah, I would say that uh, as we're all authors as well, we all make our own comics. And as an author, I don't necessarily ever have like a, a one sentence summary that I could say, this is the purpose of my story. Uh, if I could sum it up in a sentence, I wouldn't need to write the story. <laughs> um, so I feel like uh, I'm, I'm probably not unique in that. I feel like a lot of other authors maybe feel similarly that you, um, 
part of writing the story is figuring out your thesis or your theme. Um, but then it's the job of the reader to decode it and try to understand it. Uh, I think that segues well into my example. So maybe if I could pick up there. So uh, one of the comics that I chose was Scott Pilgrim. Uh, and I think that this is a good example of a story where an author maybe had a less cohesive purpose going into it, but found that purpose and tried to reinforce it as the series continued. Uh, if I were to guess Brian Lee's O'Malley's intention, I think that he mostly wanted to give a feeling uh, more than convey a specific message. He really wanted to bring this atmosphere of you know, adult adolescence, if you want to call that, the age of your early 20s with a lot of video game. He, to me, he really wanted to capture the feeling of being a hero in a video game and imagining yourself as a hero in a video game. But actually, as the series went on, to me, the goal of it is to explain, you know, struggling through adulthood, uh, especially through the lens of relationships. Okay, um, so I've got, of my two examples, uh, one of them I think the theme is a little easier to suss out than the other. Uh, I think with Nausicaa, um, it's more sort of a, an epic fantasy. It's a, a high contrast world with like uh, armies fighting each other and supernatural phenomena. And, and so it's easier to kind of see the it where um, my understanding of the theme at any rate is that it's sort of a, a response to um, like a lot of uh, Japanese stories from like mid 20th century. It's sort of deep the trauma of World War II where uh, you've got these locked in uh, what they think of as an inevitable conflict, but uh, in reality it's futile and uh, should never have happened in the first place. And, You've got environmental catastrophes that result from this war. And it's sort of this quest for peace. Like, what is peace? How do you get there? Uh, how, how does peace relate to the natural world, not just uh, these different armies? Um, and we have a, a protagonist who sort of can embody that sensibility. Uh, it takes her a while to get to that, but she's sort of our um our, our lead into like how things can be better um whereas with uh persepolis it's a little harder to figure out exactly the purpose of the story um i mean both write more autobio than i ever have but i feel like autobio especially like you don't necessarily have like a single message you want to convey so much as just you want to tell about your life maybe um and so she definitely accomplishes that. Like you feel like you know a lot more about um, Marjane after reading the story. And it's also kind of a window into a culture that um, people outside of Iran or who didn't live through the uh, Iranian revolution wouldn't uh, know anything about. Uh, so I feel like that's also part of the purpose and maybe part of why it's become such a popular work is because it's this window into this world that the rest of us aren't familiar with, but um, it's also not necessarily like singularly representative of all Iranian experience. It's 
focus very strongly just on this one author and her life. All right. Uh, Sorry, just to to to, to reemphasize that in autobio and in in memoir, quite often if you want to provide a window into a certain experience by really delving into the details, you can make that experience a lot more human and relatable. Mm. All right. And then like, uh, I guess, yeah, speaking of uh, human and relatable, um, I, uh, <clears throat> I was looking at uh, both these works, V for Vendetta and Berlin, and I found that uh, I think both of them deal with the rise of a fascist government um, in the case of V for Vendetta, it's a sort of a, a fantasy science fiction sort of dystopian future and looking at sort of uh, a, a well-established regime that's like several years into their agenda versus Berlin, which is like looking at the beginnings of the rise of national socialism in, in Germany. And I think that both works... Um, examine it through the perspective of the individual people and how it affects them. And, um, you know, you sort of, you see the, the effects of, of this fascist society through the individual characters, both in V for Vendetta and in Berlin. And uh, I think that it's the approach to those characters and maybe how it deals with the negative consequences of fascism is where the two books really diverge. And uh, when we get into um, the success of the author's intent, I think I'll have more to say on that. But um, I think one thing from my research is, um, I feel like uh, definitely with Alan Moore's work, um, V for Vendetta was written with the intent of being a protest against the Thatcher government and specifically uh, a response to a lot of anti-LGBTQ legislation uh, that was put into place. And so I think the author intent was to um, create an assaultive work uh, that was attacking a government. Um, and I think with Jason Lutz, it's more of a meditative reflection, sort of the National Socialism Party has risen and fallen. And now we're looking back and kind of examining how did, the, how did we get here? How did this happen? And so I, I think that with Berlin, it's kind of examining the root causes of how did this happen? Uh, where I think uh, V for Vendetta is more of a like, what would we have to do to end this? Like if we were in the middle of it, what would have to happen? Uh, so it's a little more speculative. Uh, yeah, I think it's interesting to compare those two works in particular with their themes because one is looking to the past and using real events from history um, and the, the characters in the story aren't necessarily historical characters, but the things that happen are historical. So it, it's sort of our window into this uh, series of events that most people have a general understanding of. Like we know about World War II, we know about uh, Hitler and uh, Nazi Germany. So it kind of, it doesn't need to put as much sort of the, it doesn't need to convince these are bad things. Like it doesn't take it upon itself as its goal because it's assuming you already uh, are in agreement with that. And it's more sort of coldly laying out like here, uh, here's how this happened. Whereas um, V for Vendetta, like I think the context matters a lot where it's written in the 1980s and 
Uh, it was harder to convince people that something like that could happen again in Britain, even though um, there, there was like a, a big shift to the right happening while this was being written. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that uh, that's where the two works really differ a lot is just in, in like kind of, uh, the, I think, I feel like in a lot of ways uh, V for Vendetta was um, almost meant as like a call to action. Like you were supposed to finish reading it and be so upset by what you read that you would go to like, um, uh, get involved, be more political, get more active, um, because you wouldn't want to be in that, in that dystopian future. Um, and then I would say, yeah, Berlin is more just like, um, yeah, kind of Watch like out. meditating on it. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, that was a uh, good discussion. I'm, I'm sure those things are going to come up, like the idea of theme is going to come up with some of these other questions as well. But uh, we got to stick to our schedule here. Or we're not going to get through them all. Uh, so next is about the author's choices. So when authors create a work, and because we're talking about comics, um, I think all of our examples have a single cartoonist. Yeah, they do. Oh, no. V is a team, yeah. Yeah, but the, all the other ones are a single person doing the writing and drawing. But whether it's a team or a single person, uh, is the they, you make choices as a writer and as an artist, and um, those will inform the story. They'll inform the theme, and sometimes it works better than others. Uh, I think it works pretty well with the picks that we've. Uh, eaten pick other examples, but certainly this is an area where if you're a cartoonist, this is something that you want to think about is, does my drawing style fit my, um, my motivation for doing the story in the first place? Um, so uh, let's see. So with uh, Persepolis, I think the, I think both of my examples, the, um, the choices in the art uh, suit the uh, the goal pretty well. Uh, like Persepolis is uh, autobio and I think because it's a, a real world setting with characters who are real people, uh, I think it's beneficial to kind of simplify and cartoon them into like um, like simpler, sim more simply drawn characters uh, because they're more relatable. That's the, the masking effect that Scott McCloud talks about in his book, where uh, a, a character that's drawn more simply is easier for the reader to connect to. And because drawing all her characters that way, you can kind of see yourself in any of the characters. And because it's a real world setting, even if you're not very familiar with Iran, you know what 20th century life looks like generally. So you don't need cars and houses to be drawn in like a high level of detail because you know what these things look like. Um, so, uh, so it makes the story more engaging without leaving out any information that you're going to need. Um, and then the, uh, with Nausicaa, uh, Miyazaki's a, an animator, so he could choose any drawing style he wanted to. Um, 
the the style of the art does look different from the style in his movies um partly for practical reasons because you wouldn't want to animate all that cross hatching uh but I think the cross-hatching that he's added to this that he wouldn't necessarily have had in other stories helps with kind of the the grittiness of it and with the sort of the sense of a long space of time like it feels a little more nostalgic to have all these ink lines everywhere it looks like an etching from 100 years ago uh, and that suits the work i think because it makes you feel like things are old even stories set in the future Yeah, it's true. And it's really interesting to think about how the choices you make as an artist can either serve or detract from the goal. Uh, I think the two examples that I picked are a good window into how a more experienced writer handles this versus a less experienced writer. Uh, so Brian Lee O'Malley had only written, I think, one or two books before he started the Scott Pilgrim series. And as I mentioned in the beginning, the goal of the work was not as clear, it was not as cohesive, and it developed going forward. Uh, and so for that reason, I think some of the choices in that book detracted from the theme. So the video game iconography, you know, Scott was really held up as a as a hero. Uh, but the things that he were doing were actually not that great. And there were uh, times when the other characters in the work were more aware than, you know, Scott seemed to be. But uh, and, you know, as you follow the course of the entire arc of the books, it's, it doesn't really land. Uh, the theme of the work doesn't really land in a way that's really punchy. Uh, and so if you compare that with the book that followed, Seconds, that's a book that had a very cohesive theme. It was of exploring regret. And it, it took this idea of, like, navigating adult relationships, but a little bit farther down the line with more adulthood responsibilities, uh, and the whole plot reinforced that theme. So the plot was uh, a character appears that gives the protagonist, Katie, the ability to have a do-over in her life. And Katie abuses this power and it spirals out of control in her life. And so the narrative choices are, sh are, are the, the scenes that progress throughout the book are selected a lot more cohesively in order to reinforce that theme of regret and responsibility and consequences. Uh, whereas Scott Pilgrim was just like, a lot of fun stuff happened. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think you're right. Seconds is a much, uh, a, a much tighter plot for sure. Um, and maybe enjoyable as a read for that reason. Like, I don't necessarily think the story needs to have a really tight plot, but in Brian Lee O'Malley's case, it suited Second very well. And maybe Pilgrim could have benefited from a little bit of that. Okay. Um, that's, that's great. Um, I, uh, should I jump in with mine or? All right. Um, so yeah, uh, I think as far as like uh, success of uh, of the artist, um, I think that um, as far as the art goes, I feel like uh, David Lloyd did a fantastic job of realizing the script that he was provided. Um, there's like a really gritty, heavy kind of art style that's drawn in V for Vendetta. And I think it suits the really gritty, heavy subject matter. Um, 
I think the original work was in black and white and the colors were added when it was, um, when it was published by DC, which is something I think we talked about in the episode. And then, you know, comparing that to Berlin, which, um, was intended to be black and white. I feel like ultimately like black and white suits this kind of subject matter better. I think, um, there's, I've, I've heard like an argument that like black and white art makes you think more about the content and not react as emotionally to the content. The color is like an emotional indicator or black and white, you're more intellectually absorbing it. And so I feel like um, Berlin benefited from being black and white. And I think that V for Vendetta actually would have um, been a clear, maybe like what would have been better as a story if it was black and white. I think the starkness of the black and white would have suited the mood. And actually, I think we, we had talked about how some of the coloring actually got in the way of reading some of the art because the art hadn't been intended to be read in color. Um, so I think that this is, um, yeah, I think that uh, one note for V Vendetta might be to do it black and white. Um, but I think that in both cases, the illustrator uh, did a really good job. Um, I think that um, when we talk in terms of the writing, uh, this is where I had some interesting thoughts because I think that my initial premise of, of when I came into the original episode of V for Vendetta is I would have said Alan Moore was successful in his intentions, uh, which is that he wanted to sort of create a call to action in a comic form, that it was uh, celebrating anarchy and, and proposing this idea of toppling the government um, in kind of uh, in a really aggressive way. And I think from reading Berlin, I feel like... Um, uh, I, I, I see that, um, you know, I think there's a very different approach happening there in the writing, but I feel like in some ways it's a lot more successful because I think that um, in both works, we're examining fascism through different perspectives. Like I think in both works, you're looking at people that are benefiting from the system and people that are being oppressed by the system. Um, but I would say that the, uh, the like emotional impacts, the trauma that's being inflicted on the characters is definitely dealt with in a more, uh, maybe like a more realistic way or just like a more sensitive way in Berlin where I feel like, um, you know, uh, there's some really unpleasant things that are happening in Berlin, but I think that the way it's approached, it's um, not as jarring, not as like, um, like punching the face as, as V for Vendetta, where I feel like V for Vendetta was made for shock value. The intention of the artist, I think, was to essentially punch the reader in the face. And I think for that reason, not everyone's going to enjoy being punched in the face, where uh, you're going to lose a lot of readers that way. And I think that um, Berlin is, is, is able to sort of deliver similar ideas, but um, in a more nuanced way that's going to, I think, uh, appeal to a broader audience and so i think more people are going to feel um more people are going to feel that masking effect you were talking about jonathan where they're going to actually see themselves in the work where i think that maybe from my position in society i can read v for vendetta and say oh isn't that horrible um i really need to do something but i think that if you're someone who's already um daily being victimized by a system you're going to look at V for Vendetta and just say, yeah, I, I welcome to the party. Like, I don't need to, I don't need to live this again. Like I don't care. Um, and so maybe Berlin does a better job of kind of um, speaking from different perspectives was kind of my, my takeaway.
Uh, if I can echo that, like one of the things that really struck me about Berlin is how carefully all the characters were selected. So like all of the characters were deliberately selected to show through different lenses how uh, fascism was progressing in Berlin. Uh, comparing that to Persepolis where, you know, Marianne decided to show her own perspective because it was real and deeply humanizing, but uh, for that reason, we didn't get a lot of different perspectives of what was happening in Iran, and we perhaps don't have a complete picture of that event, although we can never have a perfect picture of a historical event. Yeah, uh, I think the when you bring up the audience for V from Vendetta, I think that's important to understand the story as well. Alan Moore's perception of who would be reading this book was maybe pretty narrow, um, especially if you consider that when it was originally published, it wasn't this big graph novel on the shelf of every bookstore with a movie adaptation to promote it. It was a very small indie publication in Britain uh, with not a lot of readers. And so I think he was speaking just to that very narrow and so I, there probably were still people who were kind of like, oh, that's not for me. I'll just read some other story in this um, anthology or whatever it was. Um, yeah, I think the part of the reason that V for Vendetta is less effective now is because so many more people reading comics and so many more people reading this particular comic and then realizing, oh, wait, this doesn't, doesn't do what I want it to. So, that's part of the historical content. I think that's worth keeping in mind whenever we're looking at a book. Um, like even if it's a book from pretty recently, like I was checking the date on uh, Persepolis and the first volume was published in French in 2000. So this is like right before the World Trade Center when uh, certainly a lot of English at least uh, had some very particular ideas about the Middle East that um, this book can be beneficial for having a different perspective, but also that's not context that the book was necessarily written in. It just happens to still work in that new context. Um, okay, so maybe let's jump ahead to our next question here. Um, so the next question I've got is, uh, how does this work fit into the author's larger body of work? Uh, and Jam has already kind of brought this up uh, a little bit, so yeah. maybe uh, maybe you can start with that. Yeah, sure. Mine is pretty quick and easy to understand. So uh, there was Lost at Sea and like a couple of other smaller works, and then the behemoth that is Scott Pilgrim happened. Uh, it was a phenom, uh, and it really transformed comics and transformed Brian, Lomia Brian Lee O'Malley's career. Uh, and then Seconds came out in the aftermath of that. So it's funny because there's so much uh, pressure on an author after they make a smash success. Uh, Brian had so much more experience and he also had like a lot more resource and time. Like everyone was willing to give him anything he needed to make his next work. Uh, and so, whereas like Scott Pilgrim was like a young scrappy indie comic, I think originally published by like Slave Labor Graphics or something or his Oni. Uh, so pretty, pretty different, but uh, a nice continuum that you can see Brian Lee O'Malley's experience evolving throughout. 
Okay. <clears throat> well, um, as far as the uh, how the work fits into the the larger body of work for uh, for the works I picked, um, I would say um, I, I I think that with Jason Lutz, I've almost read his entire body of work because he's primarily uh, he did a, a, sh a small graphic novel called Jar of Fools, and then he followed that up with uh, Berlin, and he's done a few short stories, and he's written some things that other people have drawn. But as far as like his own uh, written and drawn works. I've, I've read them all. And so uh, I would say that it's interesting to me that his first book, Jar of Fools, deals with uh, magicians. It deals with like struggling uh, magicians who are, they're kind of at the end of the heyday of when people went to magic shows. So they're, they're sort of hobo magicians and they take this young boy, I think, or girl, I forget, a young child in into their circle. And this is an aspiring magician and sort of talks all about Harry Houdini and, and that great era of magic. And I found it interesting that in Berlin, there's a character who's obsessed with Houdini. So there is this sort of through line in the two works. Um, and it's both dealing with like history and also a similar time period of history. So, you know, I would say Jason Lutz seems to be very on brand in, in, it, in all of his works. Um, and then, uh, now I don't know all of David Lloyd's uh, drawing drawing work, but uh, I do know as an author, uh, Alan Moore, I'm very familiar with his works and uh, he is uh, very on brand with V for Vendetta. I would say that um, it, it very much fits in with uh, his oeuvre of work. Um, there's uh, a lot of repeated themes in, in his work, uh, which is like anti-government, anarchy, uh, mysticism and shamanism. Uh, which even in V for Vendetta, the, the detective taking acid in order to catch V, it, going on this shamanic quest. Uh, like all of this is stuff that you just see repeated over and over again in Swamp Thing and Watchmen and, you know, all of his other works. Uh, so yeah, I think both both authors have a very sort of set style that they're definitely working within in, in both works. Um, so for both of them that I picked, uh, I didn't think about this when I was picking them, but they are both books that have been done by people who are also, who also work in film. Um, so uh, Marjani has other graphic novels that she's done. Uh, I have not actually read any of them, but I don't know as much about the context of her other work uh, in that sense, but uh, she was also um, heavily involved in the um, animated version of Persepolis. Uh, and because you've got the same person who did the graphic novel who's doing the um, animated adaptation of it, the consistency in the style, both of the story and of the art is like, there's a, there's a lot of consistency there, which is great to see because then you feel like you're still seeing the, um, the voice of the artist in both works. It's not one artist doing a work and then some totally other person doing their version of it. It's, it's pretty distant in that sense. Um, and then for um, Miyazaki, his context is interesting in that uh, Nausicaa was originally going to be uh, an animated, um, animated movie, but no studio would pick it up if there wasn't a manga of it to start with. This was in the early days of Studio Ghibli when um, 
he couldn't just do a movie or do any movie he wanted to. He hadn't sort of proven himself to the industry. So he went and did this amazing graphic novel just so he could make a movie and then we never get any more graphic novels from him, which is kind of too bad because like, uh, but I mean, then there's all these movies he got to make too. So that's also good, I guess. <laughs> um, so when we're talking about authors, I think it's also uh, good to bring up the idea of the, the death of the author, which is something you hear about a lot when people talk about literature. Uh, the idea being that once an author has finished their work, that they no longer have any control over it, and it's all up to the reader to decide what it means. Um, and I think that there's definitely a lot of validity to that, but uh, I don't think you can also then completely ignore who the author was and what their intent was. Um, like it's it's a way of thinking of things. I don't think it's like an absolute law of the universe that the author has no control over their work once it's finished. I don't know if any of the rest of you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, okay. I mean, uh, I would say, um, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's, a deep, <laughs> that's a deep topic. But uh, I mean, I would say that um, certainly from what I've read of Alan Moore, I would say he would 100% agree with the idea of the death of the author. I think he would probably tell you that all of his ideas are living on in the immateria uh, of the of the undermind that we can all tap into, and uh, like they'll 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 exist on their own and 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 have lives of their own independent of of him and the rest of us, um, all all while renouncing all royalty checks for the films being adapted from his work. Um, so yeah, um, I mean I think that um, I think that definitely in terms of. Uh, um, like uh, how things fit into the um, like the, the context of the time, um, I would say uh, Alan Moore's work was like fit into that grim and gritty, uh, angry late '80s, early '90s time period. Um, and in many ways, V is the the prototype for all of the murderous uh, superheroes that emerged in the late nineties. Like, um, the, V was one of the first. Rosa. Yeah. Yeah. Before the, before the Punisher, there was V and, uh, and, and for better or for worse, um, I think that that influenced a whole generation of cartoonists in how, how you seek justice, you seek justice with knives. Like, uh, and, um, I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, if you look at Alan Moore's later works, you look at his ABC comics, I would actually say in many ways, um, that was his apology letter to comics, where he was like, I am going to write really happy, fun stories that have superheroes that do wondrous things, because I feel really guilty about being responsible for every superhero, like murdering people continuously. Um, but yeah, uh, I have more to say about Alan Moore here than Jason Lutz. I'm not as, uh, I mean, I think Jason Lutz is a fantastic cartoonist. I think he embodies a lot of uh, really amazing graphic novel work that we're seeing in the, in the year 2000 and beyond. Um, but I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, Jason Lutz is in a very established tradition of, of graphic novel making, where I would say, for better or for worse, I would say Alan Moore has the benefit of being first. He was the one who kind of 
took this stuff and was like, what if, what if comics were unpleasant? What if things were grim and gritty? And like, people were like, Hey, that's cool. Let's do that for a bit. You know? So like, uh, yeah, he, whether you like it or not, he, he innovated it. <laughs> yeah. Similarly, I think Scott Pilgrim fits in the same kind of genre, right? So like when you read Scott Pilgrim now, uh, and we spent quite a bit of time talking about this on the Trade Waiters, the things that happen and the way that the story goes, it doesn't seem that groundbreaking, but actually because of the time that it came out, it is a trope establishing landmark work in comics. Uh, it was one of the first to, uh, to bring what I would call like the anime rebound style to indie. So uh, an artist who was very ha uh, heavily influenced by anime artwork, but then bending it into a more independent style. And this style almost became like a house style for independent comics for a little while, you know, like it became like the Scott Pilgrim look that a lot of people emulated. Uh, further to that, like the the use of video game imagery and video game tropes. So merging video game tropes and comic tropes in one was groundbreaking when Scott Pilgrim did it. And now it's it's a very easy way to communicate. It's like the dam was broken and now you can pull tropes from anywhere. Uh, the other thing that I think uh, Brian Lee O'Malley did really well is uh, pioneering what I would call like the narrator meta, where like you have a character and he's like, I hope that this works out well for me. And the narrator comes in is like, it didn't. <laughs> and that's something that I think was done a lot in uh, Scott Pilgrim, but I hadn't seen it many other places. And that kind of became a, a signature of O'Malley's. So again, like he started Scott Pilgrim as a relative unknown. It became a phenom and then seconds followed up with it. Uh, and he already had, you know, this gilded reputation, but Seconds didn't really make as much of a splash. There wasn't anything groundbreaking in Seconds like there was in Scott Pilgrim. It's a more cohesive work, it's a more mature work, it's, uh, you know, a much more polished work, but it didn't make as much of an impact because of the context of its time. Yeah, I think, like, when we did our episode, this came up with um, some of our younger trade waiters, how, um, I'm thinking of, uh, Jess in particular, who uh, wasn't a fan of the book. Uh, and I think part of that is the, the context. Um, if most of the stuff you've read is post Scott Pilgrim, then kind of the innovative work that the book was doing has kind of spread out and like lots of other cartoonists are doing it. And so you can, it's easier, I think, to reject the, the story for its many flaws and it has many flaws um and say oh well i don't i don't get it It doesn't do anything for me like i i could get the same i could get the good things about this somewhere else without all the things i don't like about it um but that's that's where the, sort of the context is important where um and the, re the rest of the trade readers we all sort of read it when it was new and so we experienced this process firsthand so our contexts are different this is where like the this is where the death of the author is real, where like we're all experiencing this story differently because of our own personal context. But um, yeah, even if it's not a book, like even if it's B for, B for Vendetta and you decide, no, oh, I don't really like this, it's still worthwhile to see, to be able to sort of step back and look at like, what did this accomplish in its context compared to the comics that came before and the comics that came after. Um, 
And that doesn't necessarily make you like a book better, but it, it is interesting. It, like, it gives you a, a, a broader understanding of the world. Um, yeah, I, I think... Go ahead. Oh, okay, I was going to say, yeah, I think that um, I think that, that uh, is, it kind of connects back to that sort of what I was saying before about being first, where like, uh, you know, in 1987, comics were just for kids and uh, there was nothing significant written in a comic. And so when Watchmen comes out, people are like, oh, it's literature. And, and there's nothing to compare it to. And so um, now in, you know, in, in 2020, we have all of this work we can go through. Now we can look back and go like, well, like Watchmen did some stuff, but is it the best thing? Like maybe there's some other works that, that, that are, have more nuance. Like, oh, we have V for Vendetta and that is challenging fascism. At the time, it was the only thing challenging fascism, but now we have all these other options to choose from. Now we could read Berlin instead. And so it's like, yeah, when, you're, when there's no, nothing for comparison, you can sort of be elevated onto a pedestal. Uh, and then later, 20 years down the road, suddenly it's like, well, actually, these other authors have handled this topic actually much better now. And there's much better examples that have been created. Um, but sometimes these things get remembered because they were first, because they were the, the innovator, right? Yeah, and we've talked some on Trade Readers before about how we're in this graphic novel explosion and there's all these exciting new works coming out all the time. And uh, I think it's important to remember how much better comics are now. Like um, once in a while you'll see people still try to have like, oh, this is the canon of comics. You have to read these 10 comics, which all happened to be before the year 2000. Um, and like this is, these are the important works, but like, I don't think, at least as far as North American comics are concerned, I don't think that's something you can do because there are so many more people reading comics and so many more people making comics and the um, opportunities for learning comics are so much better now than they were that the overall quality of the work is like so much better. Um, like if you were to pick the top 10 North American comics 30 years ago, none of those comics would be on the list right now. Um, so that's something to, to keep in mind too when we're, especially when we're looking at older books is that um, they might just not hold up compared to what is being made right now. Uh, and if you look at somewhere like Japan, where the comics industry has been healthier for longer, um, you might be able to go back further in time and find more sort of definitive works. Like you can go back to Tezuka and say, oh, this still holds up. This is still really interesting. It, it's harder to do that in North American comics. Like uh, it, it's a very, it's not a new medium because comics have been around for a very long time, but it's definitely a new industry uh, in this part of the world. And it's one that's evolving all the time. And I, I think you're right, John. It's like, this is a really exciting time to be someone who likes comics, for sure. <laughs> and there's so many new ways to access it and new voices and new styles. Uh, there is no one way to enjoy comics. And certainly like the three of us and the, the, the panelists that we've had on the train waiters, we always come at it with a different lens. Yeah, and this is like, uh, I know my personal agenda for whenever we do a trade, trade readers episode is to sort of plant the flag and say, all of these things are comics. Like this is comics and this is comics and they're all part of this one sort of conversation. Um, 
and it's great to be in a period in history where you can look at comics not just from this part of the world but comics from japan and comics from europe uh, and comics from other parts of the world as well and to be able to sort of look at them all and see what people have done in the past and see what people are doing now and sort of understand that this is all part of a single medium that has been very fractured and it still isn't necessarily very united but like there's a lot of voices um speaking and you can listen to all of them yeah and as you become more practiced in reading comics and uh certainly this is something that i've appreciated through my experience with the trade waiters is that it has exposed me to like a much wider variety of different types of comics so you see these conversations that are happening between like North America and Europe and Japan, as you mentioned, but also these different little clusters and schools of people. So you have like the webcomic school and the indie comic school and the manga school, and then there are schools within manga and all of that is a conversation. So Scott Pilgrim is a conversation between Japan and Indy. Uh, I would say Berlin is probably a little bit of Euro mixed into North American perspective on, sorry, uh, on European history. So there's a lot of back and forth and you see uh, creators in Japan being influenced by the comics that are happening here. Yeah, well, yeah that's... I... sorry, go ahead. Okay. No, I was gonna say, uh, I think that, um, yeah, we, we, I, I think I've talked about this before, but it's like, I think this is what makes comics really exciting for me in 2020 is that when I started reading comics in the, in the 90s, people could say, oh, this is comics. Like, if you want to read the best comics, you got to start by reading Watchmen, and then you got to read V for Vendetta, and then you got to read Sandman, and that's it. That's our, we've made this short list to read. And uh, that just doesn't hold up anymore. Now, like, that's just one tiny branch that's on this much bigger tree. And what I find really exciting, especially from doing these trade waiters, is, like, discovering all the parts of the tree that I've never seen before, that there's like these whole avenues of comics that I was unaware of. And, um, and that to me is exciting. It's like, if, 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 if all comics were, was that list of like 10 books that was like Watchmen, Dark Knight Returns, uh, Daredevil, Man Without Fear, and that's it, I'd be like, well, that's it, I've read it all, who cares? But like, that's not true, right? There's so much out there to read and there's so much more diversity and that that's what keeps me in it. Yeah, and just to um, play off something that Jam said about this conversation, um, like in terms of uh, prose, that's one of my absolute favorite things is when an author will um, use their work to sort of make some kind of statement and then another author maybe decades later will say mm, i disagree i'm going to take that and do something different uh, i was just talking about this on uh twitter a lot of people have been talking about um lord of the flies and it's what i find interesting about lord of the flies is that it was a response to a previous book um that was about these british schoolboys stranded on a desert island and like everything went great because they're British and they're upper class and of course everything would go well for them and then uh, William Golding is like mm, I don't think so <laughs> so he was, like, wrote the opposite of that and said no everything is terrible these British schoolboys they're the worst they're gonna destroy each other um, and so 
in that context, in the context of a conversation between works, it's really interesting to sort of know why he wrote it from that perspective, but then it's still just one voice in a conversation. And I would really love to read someone else's um, takeoff of Lord of the Flies to say, no, 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 you're missing all these other important things about humanity, so read this book instead. Uh, and I always, I actually kind of, I kind of try to do that with my own work. I think a, a lot of my books are responses to previous things. Sometimes it's a little more obvious than others, but um, yeah, that, that conversation, uh, it's not uh, as deep a conversation in comics, I think, because our industry is so young, but it's something I look forward to in the future. Uh, okay, so we've got two questions left and not a lot of time. Let's see how much we can get through here. So the next question is, um, what's unique or innovative about the comic? And we did talk a little bit about this, about things in the examples that we picked that are uh, kind of stand out or that it was new when the book was written. Um, and it's always useful to sort of look at that with a, a book that you're reading to say, what is this doing that's different from what other books did? Yeah, I think I, I covered that pretty well. Uh, a lot of the video game imagery and the uh, narrator meta was very new when Scott Pilgrim came up. Uh, and you don't see a lot of groundbreaking innovation in seconds. Uh, I thought about it a little bit and I think maybe the setting. So it, it like seconds had a really strong sense of place and it was about a restaurant, but from the point of view of the entrepreneur running it. And I think that was a pretty innovative setting. I hadn't seen that before, and I, I can't think of many other examples for that. Okay, um, I think I already covered um, like uh, V for Vendetta. I think they're, uh, they, V for Vendetta was unique and innovative in that they were first, they, they did that first. Um, I guess one of the other big things is uh, Alan Moore is, known for his very like uh, heavy prose that he overlays on top of the work. And often the prose has nothing to do with the visuals. So you're sort of reading a story uh, with, with words that has nothing to do with what's actually happening visually, which kind of reminds me of like Midnight Gospel on Netflix right now, where you sort of have a conversation that has nothing to do with the animation, but um, I digress. Um, the, um, the the thing that I found really innovative about Berlin, though, was uh, that even though it deals with the rise of national socialism, Jason Lutz withholds the swastika. Um, and so for the most part, when, you, when you're supposed to see a Nazi flag, it's just a white circle. There is no swastika. But then Jonathan had pointed out that there's kind of a subliminal swastika hidden in the layout of the page. And um, he also hid uh, subliminal swastikas in the covers of all of the books when they were originally published. And the last chapter, the last book, you finally see a swastika emerge. And um, one of the things in my research on this was Jason Lutz very intentionally withheld the swastika because he felt that it was a psychologically powerful symbol and that basically uh, if he were to have a character with a swastika armband, the reader will just immediately reject that person. Like, it's, a, it's an indicator, like, you're a bad person, you're the villain, I, that's it. I don't have, you have no nuance now. And so 
by taking the swastikas out, you can examine the actions of the people of the National Socialist Party with a little more, um, like you're a little more distant from it. Um, where, you know, if everyone had a swastika on it, I feel like you can't help but interpret it like in Glorious Bastards, where you're just going to be like, oh, there's good guys and bad guys. And, and so, like, I think that that was really innovative in trying to tell a more nuanced story about Nazis. Uh, and I, I mean, and to be clear, Nazis are bad. But, like, um, I think that when you're dealing with the choices made uh, by individuals to join the National Socialist Party during the fall of the Weimar Republic, those decisions are very complicated. Like they're not just joining the Nazi party because they're bad people. They're like, they're starving. They lost their job. They've had all these other things. There's all these X factors that are influencing them. And so Jason Lutz wants us to contemplate what it was that affected these people to make them make that choice. And I think if you, if they have the armbands on, you're not thinking about that anymore. You're just, you're like, they're a bad person. They made a bad choice. And so I feel like that was what was really innovative about that work. Yeah, like it, it's a, uh, I see it as a, a storytelling tool where um, the process of these characters transforming into Nazis is a gradual one. So uh, if he puts the, the symbol on them, then from the reader's point of view, that's the turning point. But the, uh, his intent is to say that there isn't a single turning point, it's all these steps. Uh, and so the work is only complete when we see the symbol, even though in reality, the symbol was there much earlier. Um, okay, so uh, last question here we've got, and we have talked about this quite a bit, is uh, the theme, uh, sort of the metaphor of the story. Uh, we haven't talked very much about symbolism though, uh, although this does take off of uh, what we just talked about with, uh, with Berlin. So um, can you give us any other examples of symbolism in the, the stories that you picked? I think like the important thing in this point is that all of the, when you want to read comics more deeply, all of the good work that we did throughout our schooling of learning about theme and simile and metaphor, all of that can be applied to comics. And the, uh, the lovely thing about comics is that you can have this additional visual layer. Uh, so things like uh, in Scott Pilgrim, the video game imagery of like, oh, you, you got another life, you know, Scott Pilgrim gets a life. It's like that's, that's used as kind of a, a fun icon and a fun reference to video games, but it's also used in a metaphorical way. And it's like, uh, Scott Pilgrim gets the power of love and it's brought out as a sword is like underscoring that that uh, metaphorically what is happening to him emotionally. Okay. Uh, okay. So, um, I mean, yeah, I think, I think as far as Berlin goes, I mean, I think I, I covered a lot of the sort of hidden symbols there. Um, I, I mean, I, I feel like um, there was some really nice, uh, like kind of poetry in the writing. Like I feel like the the couple where the wife went and joined the communist party and the husband joined the fascist party. I feel like that was a really great way of dealing with what was happening in Germany at the time where the country was literally splitting, you know, on political lines and people were going hard left or hard right. And um, 
Yeah, they yeah, almost the, serve I, as foils for each other, I think you would say, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, yeah, I think that that was a really great choice. Um, and uh, I think that that was one of the more powerful sort of written uh, sort of symbols in, in that story. Um, I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, in, in V for Vendetta, um, I would say that uh, the, the certain uh, metaphors still stand out to me. Like I, I still always remember um, when he hijacks the television station and he uh, basically uh, broadcasts a call to action to the public, but he does it in the form of uh, an employer doing an employment review. And he's essentially sort of saying, well, folks, you really haven't taken your initiative. Uh, you just seem to be happy to sit around in, in the lower levels here uh, and where I'm going to have to let you go. And I just, I don't know, I always enjoyed the, the way that he sort of frames humanity's plight as like a lazy employee. And he's sort of saying like, you know, you guys have to step it up. You have to take some initiative. You can't just go through the motions at your job. You have to like pursue, uh, you have to shoot for that management position, right? And I, I just enjoyed the way that was, uh, he was more talking about uh, conscious enlightenment and creating an equitable society, but is framing it in this weird, like, performance review and just the way it was like expressing that I thought I, I really enjoyed I enjoyed the the metaphor or the the symbolism uh, that was created in that yeah like I just want to throw one more example out here with uh, Nausicaa uh, and I like the way Jam framed it as like there are visual symbols or visual metaphors and written symbols or written metaphors so if you look at Nausicaa I think um, it's clear that the, the god warriors are kind of a metaphor for nuclear weapons because if this is a story about World War II, then that's obviously like, that's how World War II ends as far as Japan is concerned. It's like these incredibly destructive weapons um, that are somehow still around today when he's writing the, the book. Um, so like that, that's an effective written metaphor in that uh, if this was a prose book, you would still get that metaphor. It was like the way it's described in the context of the story. This is a, a, a metaphor for, for nuclear weapons. But then there are visual metaphors as well. Um, the costumes that the soldiers wear, for example, are um, seem more from sort of a colonial era. They're not World War II costumes. They're not dressed like, um, like Japanese soldiers in World War II. They're dressed like uh, colonial soldiers either from Japan or Europe or kind of left um, up in the air and it doesn't really matter to the metaphor of the story um, but because they're from this sort of further back in the past it kind of uh, changes the metaphor it makes it a bigger metaphor that this isn't just about World War II this is about war generally and about the destruction of civilizations and, and like there's a bigger context and you wouldn't necessarily get that aspect of it if it didn't have pictures to go with it. Um, okay, so I think that is uh, about how much time we have. Um, any other final thoughts about uh, reading deeply for comics? It has been a journey, and if you would like to read deeply, uh, we have lots of episodes of The Traders that you can scroll through. 
read a comic and join us for a discussion about it and learn the things that we've picked up on and you will start to pick up things on yourself. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, and I want to add that um, uh, when I was in grade nine and uh, my English teacher forced me to do this kind of like um, looking for symbolism and metaphor and stories, I absolutely hated it. But now it's my number one favorite thing. And <laughs> once you know how to sort of read between the lines in a story, it's like, that's what the story is for. It's like, it's great, especially if someone's not telling you to do it. So um, I'm not going to tell you to do this in the books that you read, but it's fun. Yeah, no, uh, this is, I, I love, right. Uh, I love doing the trade waiters for this reason. I think I always, uh, not only do I learn more about other comics that I've never read, but I feel like it often gives me a greater appreciation, uh, or greater understanding of, of the works that I, I previously read and enjoyed. Um, I feel like, uh, I, I've, I look, look, I mean, these are, I, I picked two books that I had brought into the group and I feel like I expanded my, my understanding and my thoughts about both works from having a discussion with the group. And, uh, you know, I, I that's what I love about uh, trade waiters. Yeah. Uh, okay. So let's do, um, shout outs. So tell us who you are one more time. And, uh, I don't know if, uh, if, both of you have comics to shout out. We usually do this at the end of trade, but it's just to say, here's another book you can read. Uh, maybe I'll start so you have a minute to think about something. Um, I'm Jonathan. Uh, you can find my work at phobos-comic.com. Uh, and the comic I want to shout out is called Seed. Uh, it's by uh, Saeed P. It is a um, comic on Webtoon, and it's about uh, artificial intelligence, and I'm really enjoying it. Uh, I'm like a few updates behind. I haven't been keeping up because Webtoon like gives you notifications whenever there's a new episode, and I just haven't got back to it. But I do have a bookmark, so I'm going to go back and I'm going to read a, another chunk of it as soon as I can. I'm writing that down. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, my name is Jam. You can find my work at wastedtalent.ca, uh, and it's a it's a great time to watch some anime, guys. Uh, one that I'd like to recommend in particular is Monthly Girls Nozaki-kun, which is on Netflix right now, and it's about drawing comics. And so there's a lot of fun references in that anime uh, to how comics are made and written and some of the pitfalls that come with trying to make comics. Uh, and it's lighthearted and really funny. Uh, 12 episodes long. Check it out. <laughs> Oh, right on. Okay, well, I am going to shout out a uh, Kickstarter. So uh, Kelly Chen from Cloudscape Comics is uh, doing the second volume of Half Soul. And um, it's going to be launching uh, very soon. I think it'll be launching during, uh, I think during uh, the digital VanCAF event. So um, I'm just pulling up the website now. But yeah, check out Kickstarter for Half Soul Part 2. And uh, yeah, I think uh, sign up to be notified when it launches. I think it's going to be exciting. And if, if it's already launched when this video comes out, then back, buy a copy. All right. Uh, thank you, everybody. Uh, make sure to check out all the other things happening on the online version of VanCAF. Uh, we wish that we could see everybody in person, but that's not possible right now. And this is the next best thing.
Um, and we'll see so, you next year. I hope so. <laughs> In person this time next year. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye. The Trade Waders is presented by Cloudscape Comics. Thanks to Sleuth for the music. You can find us at tradewaders.tumblr.com, as well as iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.